Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29, the Peace Tree Hoops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. Atlanta continues to be a good starting point. Uh, they need eight more wins. Glenn Willis, uh, how many of those eight wins are they going to get? Uh, one step at a time, Kevin. Let's get these first four. <laughs> Let's get these first four. Oh, man. Four. Okay, four. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, before we get to that, I, I won't really want to talk about game seven. Uh, I know the future is probably more interesting than the past, but uh, you learn from the past. Uh, what, what did you see as sort of main themes from game seven to take away? I, they just continue to be really good on defense and you know, stuck to their plan. Um, and, I, and it looked a little concerning when Embiid got a rhythm going again in the fourth quarter. Uh, kind of yeah, that was scary. Up. It, it was. It, I felt like then it, the, the percentage was pretty low because I thought, I thought a key in Game Six, and you and I talked about this, I think a little bit, was that Philadelphia never really exerted themselves emotionally early in that game, and they kind of you know held back, and not only their physical kind of reserves, but their like I said, their emotional reserves. And I, I thought they took the same approach in Game Seven, and were leaving them enough to work with. And then once they started getting you know a little bit of separation. Uh, from the Hawks, on, on especially on the back of Embiid shot making, I thought, okay, this is starting to look like something that might not work out for the Hawks. But, you know, as they've done since the playoffs started, they just, every game, they just kind of hang in there and keep fighting and keep working. Um, and, they, you know, for a young, young, mostly young team in their first playoff experience, um, you know, I think it's hard to keep just working when the results, immediate results aren't working out the way that you wish they would. Uh, So that steadiness and that focus on just kind of working and going on to the next possession and continue to execute execute the defensive game plan with shots aren't falling, continue to run the things that you plan to run. And and that steadiness and that just, you know, kind of working, you know, possession by possession by possession on the Hawks side was just what I, I think we saw the whole series, you know, for the most part. Um, and on the Philly side, I, I just – I guess I still can't believe that their offense shut down one more time <laughs> late in the fourth quarter where they just could not make shots. And it's just it's, – it's still kind of stunning to think about how consistent that theme was across the whole series. Yeah. <clears throat> and you mentioned when Embiid started to get things going in fourth quarter. I think that – that shot by Gallinari early in the fourth when Embiid was cooking and the lead was dwindling and the Hawks were getting just no points, no really good looks at all. He made that three-pointer. I think that was a more important shot to their season than even 
the Trey game winner over the Knicks. Like that was just that was an unbelievably important shot for for them to have some steadiness for the rest of the quarter. It I think it felt like it definitely stabilized things. Like okay, you know, it's not going to be like a fifteen over. You know, we're, we can be sure of that because they just made a three point shot. And then from all the good work Kevin Herter did in that game, some of which I um, kind of put back out on my Twitter timeline today with some video breakdowns and things like that. But he created that shot for Gallo. Um, and he he drugged Simmons with him all the way to the nail, you know, all the way to the very center of the, of the court, right at the free throw line. And Simmons st- still got an awesome closeout on him, and it just didn't matter. <laughs> you know, Gallo's release point is so high, and his shooting yeah. form is so efficient that it, it's kind of crazy um, how – basically perfect the closeout was and it just didn't even seem to affect Gallo at all as a shooter on that play. Yeah and I honestly you know going into that I was expecting going into that game I was expecting more from from Gallinari on offense or that the Hawks would need more from him to pull right. out that game. I didn't expect to get as much from from Hev- Kevin Herter as they did and to me it seemed like you know the, the as the series wore on, the Sixers made Trey Young more and more of a starting point, or more and more of a focal point of, right. of their defense. I, I thought that continued in Game Seven. I thought they were, you know, they they you know, it's the series switched when they started to essentially bracket Trey with Ben Simmons from behind and Joel Embiid in front of him. And yesterday, it felt like the side walls were closing in too. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting to look back now. And, you know, we've talked about how the Sixers were shutting down all of the offensive sets the Hawks use, especially under Nate, that are based on off-ball screens. And, you know, when you talk about that in the NBA, so much of that kind of seems to be centered on creating three-point shots. But what it's always been really focused on, especially here in the playoffs for the Hawks, has been getting Bogdanovich and Herter dribbling toward the paint, you know, with some leverage and with some separation from their defenders and kind of getting those really good 8, 10, 12-foot shots, you know, in the mid-range. Um, if the, the if those two guys, defenders, overplay them, they'll swing back and, and put together kind of like a flare screen action. And Bogdanovich is really good at kind of, you know, um, punishing the over-leverage by the defender and getting that. Um, but, you know, and but in game seven, they basically still got nothing from their off-ball screen stuff. But Herder, they ran that slot pick and roll, that pick and roll um, over kind of near the three-point break. It's not quite a side pick and roll. It's not quite a high pick and roll. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I learned is that Herder is a lot better at that than Bogdanovich is. Herder is much better using a ball screen um, you know, and dribbling kind of into those actions and into those sets than Bogdanovich is. And oh boy, did they do that in game seven. Everything he created, uh, you know, while Trey was getting so much attention and, and while he had an opportunity to attack, whether it was Curry or, you know, he even got Harris you know, a time or two, you know, and things like that. But her, yeah, the more he did in that game, it just kept giving me flashbacks to Kevin Herter's first big game as a pro. And I'm wondering if you remember <laughs> It was that. in Philadelphia? It was in Philadelphia, and I still remember Justin Anderson and a few others kind of, you know, fake uh, or mock interviewing him in the locker room after the game, and they were kind of serving as the media and all of that. And 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 also as reliable as John Collins was in Game Seven, 
it reminded me that Collins was the one that hit the game deciding shot because mm-hmm. Philly trapped Herder basically. And, and the play was definitely drawn for Herder, and Herder threw it down to Collins, who had a single defender in that on that right kind of post. And so, you know, so many things that happened in that game just reminded me of that game in Philadelphia. That was kind of the coming out game for, for Gavin Herder. And, and, you know, you wonder, like, did that kind of make that environment, that location for him, uh, you know, one that's comfortable to him because he had some early success. He, he just, it's, there's so many yeah. layers typically to things like, like this, but I, I can't. Well, another another layer that is that like two months after that, Lloyd Pierce took Kevin Herter to Philadelphia to see a right. playoff game. So that was only like a couple months after that big game that he had in Philadelphia. There he, that's true. It was, uh, it was a Raptors Sixers game. Honestly, that may, that may end up being sort of the apex of this Sixers iteration like that that was the best team that they had i think uh yeah 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 i got the, to see it up close yeah for for sure yeah i mean jimmy and Embiid were really good complimentary players and you know we don't need to do a post-mortem on on the sixers and whether or not ben gets traded or not and all that you know whatever well you know we're, we're here focusing on what's going on the hawk side but um it you know it just I kept telling myself over and over and over that the Sixers all year were the better team. Uh, I know Hawks fans probably of late hear me say that or, or frustrated, but it, it, they just were. Um, <laughs> I think they outscored the Hawks by 20 points in the series. Right. And, but <laughs> there's something to uh, continuing to play together, continuing to work together, continuing to problem solve together when the pressure gets higher and the stakes get higher and the environment gets tough, um, you know, and that's for whatever reason. I, I'm not ready to kind of do a psychological decomposition on this, but the Hawks found a way to do all of those things when the Sixers, it looked like it was hard for them to kind of stick together and keep working, you know, together and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know. Well, even aside from the psychological stuff, they're just better equipped for the final six minutes of a basketball game. Like, Yeah, they have more ball handling. You know, they have more uh, guard, you know, shot creation. It's, I think across the game, it gets harder and harder for big men to create their own shot. Um, and, you know, in, in ball handling and dribble creation is super valuable. And, you know, the deeper the playoffs you get, the deeper in the game in the playoffs you get. And that really, I mean, that really made a difference. Trey had a, a pretty awful shooting night. And I never saw him look like, he was worried about it. I never saw him look like he was losing confidence in kind of what he needed to do to help his team and get his team to win. He kept delivering passes right on time. He kept dissecting, you know, even just small windows where passes were available to, you know, a big man in the dunker spot or in the lane or whatever it might be. And, you know, and, and maybe, you know, a big part of the Hawks staying on task was just a simple fact that Trey stayed on tasks and, you know, and he's there guy you know um and when your best player is is kind of just staying on task it's i think it's easier for all the guys around him uh to do the same it, i it's so unexpected to see a year three guy especially that was a one and done you know in college who came into the league so young um and then in his first playoff experience to have that i don't i don't know how he has gotten to the point where he already has that but it's a, been a major factor i think I think the Hawks closed out first round faster because of it. 
There are a lot of close games there with the Knicks. And them getting out of the second round with a win has so much to do with Trey just staying on task. And, and that's just um, so unexpected to me. You know, I, I don't want to get into this kind of these conversations like, well, Clint, you told you didn't think he could do it. You know what? Who really thought, you know, he could do this, his <laughs> first playoff, you know, fans on Twitter are going to say, oh, yeah, it was blah, blah, all along. Okay, whatever. You know, it's easy to say that now. But, uh, and it's not saying like, I thought he was going to fail. It's just this is unusual. This is really, really unusual for a third year point guard, first time in the playoffs, to have that much focus and steadiness. It's, it's just, I mean, I could go give you a list of the last 20 years, all the point guards of similar stature coming in the league, how many times it took them to win, how many years it took them to win two playoff series, you know? Um, it's That's not easy. Um, so that it's just um, continue to just be astonished by how steady and, um, and, and focused he is still. And, and that has me curious, and then we'll get to it, but that has me really curious about what that looks like, you know, starting Wednesday. Yeah, it's interesting that it feels like with each one of these progressive series, as, as the playoffs get deeper and deeper for the Hawks, it's like every series kind of has a nice segue to the next series for the Hawks. It doesn't seem like this jarring transition. I I think they're going to have a lot of the same issues against uh, the Bucks that they did against the Sixers. Like, you know, just that thing I was talking about a minute ago, like I think that the Bucks are a better team than the Hawks, especially, you know, when DeAndre Hunter is gone and, and Bogdan Bogdanovich is dragging around his right leg. But – at the same time, I think the Hawks are going to be a more proficient team in the final six minutes of a game. If it's a close game, I think they're better set up for that, uh, you know, with the ball handling, with the free throw shooting, uh, with just being a little bit more organized on offense. I don't trust the Bucks in the same way that I do the Hawks for, for that sort of thing. I, I think if if they can manage to manage the game like they did in game seven, you know, just – don't let them get away from you. Don't let them get out of your sights. I think the Hawks will be a, a dangerous team down the stretch of fourth quarters if they keep the game close. I agree. I, you know, I, I think their skill, their composite skill set, you know, just kind of like you described, sets them up for that. But also now they've had some success, you know, doing that across two series now where they've done it and proven to themselves that they can do it they can outplay their opponent late in fourth quarters because they have more um, offensive skill versity and, and then so far that all their opponents. And to your point, I think that's, that's going to hold true here. I think the perfect bucks game is going to be a ton of turnovers, a ton of fast breaks, you know, enough three point shooting, you know, packing the paint and the Hawks not hitting enough um, perimeter shots on the Hawks side. It's, keep it close the whole way and outperform them in the last four minutes or whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I make jokes sometimes. Um, I'm, I, I forgot where, but I made a joke on Twitter about Bud's a Bud team overpassing on a possession late in the game <laughs> instead of kind of simplifying. And then I made another joke about, you know, Bud drawing up a play coming out of a timeout and Giannis after his second dribble, just totally scrapping whatever Bud drew up and just kind of looking for a Euro step path of the basket. And, 
and you know those are kind of just sad and good fun they're not they're maybe half serious at most you know um but you know there's some there's some truth in every even joke um you know but i mean they the bucks get pretty crude offensively late in the game and do really predictable things yes you know uh, they they don't they don't have a dynamic guy like Trey to kind of get past defenders and you know stress the defense and cause multiple defenders to react to him and all that. I mean Giannis when he can kind of get to the rim, there's not really much you can do. Um, but you know what the Hawks did against Julius Randle? They forced him to shoot the ball from the outside or become a passer, and he never really became a passer because he's not really a passer. What do they do with Embiid? Um, you know Embiid's a better passer than Randle, but to start the series, they kept him, they kept defenders in front of him, kept him out of the middle, forced him to shoot shots over defenders. And then as the series went on, they introduced more variety, you know, just to kind of show him different looks and different pressure from different sides, different angles, all right. that sort of stuff. And you, you kind of started to hint at this a few minutes ago where the Knicks series kind of helped build the Hawks, <laughs> some of the Hawks' habits that helped them win the, the Sixers series. Now, the Sixers series have had kind of helped them build some habits that I think we could say are going to serve them well uh, in the Bucks series because what they do with Giannis is not going to be all that different than what they did with Embiid, which is not going to be all that different from what they did with Randall. And what and you have to we, do with Giannis in, in transition is exactly the same stuff that you have to do with Ben Simmons in transition. Exactly. Run your butt back to the paint, build a wall, keep him off the rim, and be ready to close out on shooters because Ben's great at, you know, once he gets stopped, kind of heading toward the paint, he's great finding shooters on the wings, things like that. And Giannis isn't the passer that Ben Simmons is, but he's, you know, way more skilled at kind of actually getting to the rim with the ball and not being afraid to get fouled or take the shot or whatever. Right. But the the base principles are are all basically the same, you know. and that's pretty fascinating. If they if they had bumped into Brooklyn at any point, it would have been a totally different thing, you know, whatever form that was or whatever, you know. But the step from Knicks to Sixers to Bucks is fascinatingly linear, and yeah. in terms of the, the the principles that you're going to use at least defensively, kind of set yourself up for success. And then the next series, they got better at those defensive principles every game, it seemed. In in the Sixers series, you know, they continue to get um, a little bit more precise in what they were doing with Embiid, you know, game four, five, six, seven, especially the last three, you know. And it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, it'll, it'll, I think it'll be a little different. You know, I think I remember – It didn't happen. I'm not, I'm not throwing Zach Lowe under the bus, but it was, you know, and then in round two, he was defending uh, Embiid um, a lot, but then there were a couple of times they put Gallo on Embiid and keeps us, and just like when, when Gallo got the turnover last night and the, and the run out dunk. Yeah, I fully um, expect that, a bunch of Gallo on Gallinari in this series because he's been prepped for it. Like the stuff that he needed for this series, guarding Simmons and guarding Embiid is, is good prep for, for what he's going to see. It just seems very linear again. It, for sure. But, but the one thing that's different, even though okay. is that I, well, I guess it's the same from round two is that Capella will be on ball more, but with a guy who doesn't 
very often start with his back to the basket and the guy who starts all the way out of the three-point line. And Beat's not really looking to dribble past you. Giannis is looking to dribble past you and through your defense. And, you know, so it'll be interesting to see, like, the first five possessions. Is Capella on Giannis? You know, because Giannis, I mean, Capella seems wasted on Brook Lopez way out on the perimeter. You know, and the Bucks would be happy to you know, put Brook Lopez above the three-point break, you know, two but steps they, behind the three-point <laughs> They, they, it's hard to know because they switch. Like there were times where Brooke Lopez in past years, you just knew that he was going to be out on the three point line. It seems like this season they've been more apt to put him in the dunker spot. Yeah. But they like the, the Nets never really played uh, a defensive anchor at the five. I mean, Blake's not that. Right. Katie played the five, you know, he's not that. Um, and so I think Capella is a different thing. And I think Capella okay. is the kind of big you want to get out of the middle. Right. And so I, I would be shocked if the first three possessions or whatever, if Brook Lopez is anywhere else. I don't even expect him in the corner. I expect him two yeah. steps above the three-point line, <laughs> above the three-point break. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and clearing space for Giannis to work there. And then if that's the case, and then, and then on the flip side, I guess I would be – I'm going to be a little surprised if um, – if Capella's even on Brook Lopez to start. Anyway, we, we've switched over to the other series already when I was That's really, okay. really just talking about a linear oh. kind of step from one to one to one. But I, I don't know if we did Kevin Herter justice uh, there. But, but yeah, it's the the progression has been from a defensive approach and building up to what they will need to be successful against the Bucks. It's just fascinating. I don't want to take you to Milwaukee if you're not ready to go there yet. Are you, you, did you want to talk more about the Sixers? No, I was worried. I moved this too quickly. If you want oh, to talk no, Milwaukee, you're I'm happy. Talk I, I want to uh, – so let's say the Bucks start Holiday, Connor, and Giannis, Brooke Lopez, and P.J. Tucker. Uh, who, who's trade guarding? I would think it's Connor. Yeah, I could see that. You think that's the likeliest, or do, you, or do you think a different option is more likely? Uh, I think they might put him on Kana, and I think if the Bucks get to a point where they start to use um, Bryn Forbes more with some of their starters, that you could see Trey on P.J. Tucker. I don't think that they're necessarily dying to do that, but uh, I don't know. I, I think it's some combination of of Connaughton, I think, as, as a primary, depending on how much the Bucks use him, uh, P.J. Tucker. And, and, you know, it's not great, but Drew Holiday, is, you, if you feel like he's out of a rhythm offensively, you might try it. It would invite him to, to be aggressive and go towards the rim, but I don't know. There, there might be some value in that, at least testing it in, you know, you certainly don't want that to be plan A and have no plan B, C, or D, but I think it's worth a look just to see. Yeah, the, even if Drew's not making shots, the one thing he can do is make Trey work really, really, really hard and have that be a fatigue factor you know, across sure. the game. Where Connaughton just doesn't have that dribble. No, he doesn't have that game. juice or the dribble. He doesn't right. have the outside shot either. He's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's a good player and he fits well in their system, but – uh, he's, I don't know that he, you know, certainly they're, 
how do you put this? Uh, you know, they they don't have Dante DiVincenzo, so he's not designed to be their starter in the first place. But right. at the same time, you look at the Bucks and they needed uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. Really, I mean, I, I just think that that the fifth starter is a huge hole for them. So you know, Connaughton wasn't the original choice's fifth starter, but I think there was a decent sized hole there to begin with. Yeah, I think Bud just likes Connaughton's defensive size. You know, he offers good size defensively. Um, it kind of fits what they do there, and and you, I think on, on the Bucks side, you just hope he gives you some shooting, some passing, you know, whatever that might be. Connaughton's pretty good in transition, um, you know, for a guy who's not dynamic with the ball, you know, otherwise. Um, but he's fast and he's got good verticality, and so he kind of fits that, um, you know, create turnovers, get out and run uh, type of blueprint that they they like to use to kind of kind of really um, get an advantage on their opponent. But, yeah, I mean, in a conversation, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, I was mentioning that if Trey is off on any minutes that Brent Forbes is on, that that's bad for the Hawks. <laughs> you know, and um, every minute Forbes is on, Trey needs to be on. And, I mean, that, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect a bit because you can't let Bud decide when Trey's going to be off and on and all that. But, you know, Forbes is, a, is an ideal uh, place to kind of put Trey because he's not as big as Connaughton. And, you know, it has about the same kind of dribbling uh, package that Connaughton has and things like that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, t- I think you were suggesting earlier that when Forbes is on, that's a great option to portray. P- but, um, you know, there'll be times when it's Drew, Middleton, Giannis, Lopez, and then I won't be surprised to see a little bit more when Tucker's off, a little bit more Bobby Portis, just more physical, you know, players, you know, and things like that. I, I, I know Portis fell out of the rotation across the net series, um, um, but the Hawks don't have, you know, Kevin Durant. So, you know, um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, who does Bogdanovich defend? How's he feeling? Does he play? You know, I think against the Bucks, it's also. I'm also curious. Do you do you start Trey, McDonough, and Herder? You know, because that's a pretty small lineup for what the Bucks put out there. You know, right? Um, and so you know, it's going to be fascinating to kind of see who even is the starting lineup for the Hawks. That you know, does Herder go back to the bench if Bogdanovich is good to go, or um, you know, that's not a result of. Uh, you know, a performance issue, kind of pushing back a bit for sure. It's just needing as much size on the, on the court as you, you kind of get in, in bulk. Yeah, I sort of, sort of suspect that we're going to see a fair amount of the big ball lineup again. I, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how linear some of, the, some of these transitions are in these series, but it's just, it seems very natural. Uh, you know, when you got P.J. Tucker – Giannis and Brooke Lopez out there together. I mean, there's, you know, why not? Like, Gallinari's going to shoot well enough that you're not going to lose anything there. Uh, you you can be dy- dynamic enough on offense, and and you just need big bodies to to deal with Giannis and Lopez. They're they're such a haul, such a load. Um, I mean, it just it seems really natural, especially if Bogdanovich isn't 100. That that's something that you're going to want to try. Yeah. Yeah. Who does JC start on? Tucker? Uh, 
<laughs> am I am I supposed to have some? Is there is there is there an underlying axiom that I'm supposed to take before this? No, no. I think that's that's the biggest mystery to me is where does JC go? You know, I mean, I, it, I think your first question is who do you want guarding Giannis? Right. I think we start there and then fill in. So, who do you want guarding Giannis? Well, I mean, I think. Capella spends a lot of time on him, but, but there's a big question is, is that where you start, you know, or do you move her back to the bench, start solo Hill and give solo the first like four minutes of the game and start him on Giannis just to keep everybody else out of foul trouble. And I mean, even if it's just yeah, that. No, I, and I, I'm with you. I know you push solo Hill more than I do. I think right. it makes it more sense for this series than it did for the Sixers series. Right. Um, the, the trick is if you put JC on Lopez, He's a long way from the paint where he's most helpful as a defender. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you put him on Tucker, again, Tucker's going to be in the corner the, the whole darn game. <laughs> you know, yep. ready to shoot a three, and he, you know, yep. he shoots those pretty well. And, you know, um, you, you have to help off of him to a degree, but you also have to kind of respect what he can do out there too. So um, it's going to be interesting. And then, you know, what who, who t- takes on Middleton? Is that, you know, who is that? Is that? I guess it has to be Bogdanovich if he starts the two in that in that scenario. That's a tough thing to ask if he's on that knee. And then, so then, maybe, then you ask yourself, what well, does Herder start at the two and Bogdanovich come off the bat? You know, there's a, there's a lot to kind of work through there, um, you know, mentally. But I mean, I, I, with my own coaching background, just which is obviously at a much lower level uh, in, in games and, you know, late in tournaments and stuff like that, just sometimes you just don't want your, one of your best players getting a foul trouble start right. the game. Cause it throws the whole rest of the game off from, a, you know, yeah. what you're playing for your rotation and stuff. So I'm not going to be shocked to see solo put back in the starting lineup to start the series and be the first guy that's drawing uh, Giannis there, you know? Yeah, so I know no, fans right. will probably hate it because fans have, are done with solo based on what I see on Twitter and everywhere else. Right. But there's some, I just think there's some logic there, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it, it plays back into the fact that, you know, I think the Bucks are a deeper, better team over the course of 48 minutes and, and foul trouble is just like a magnifying glass for all of that. Absolutely. Let's say that Bogdan Bogdanovich can't play, or especially if they want to be you know, if they want to look at it as a seven-game series and they're like, you know, we're just going to be super careful the first two. Uh, yeah, he played in game seven, but that was that was uh winner-go-home situation. Now they're going to be more conservative about it. Where do the Hawks get these minutes? I know you, you mentioned Solo. I don't know how, you know, what sort of load you think can go with that, but where are they going to get uh, – 240 minutes of, of basketball with uh, yeah, I mean, the rotation it, that they have at this point. Yeah. I mean, you got to scale Lou up probably. And then that's when the Forbes minutes become really important, probably not for Trey, uh, but for Lou there. Uh, Trey and Lou against the Bucks is pretty frightening <laughs> in terms of, you know, kind of getting back, getting set up, and kind of building a sizable wall, you know, against their transition and some re- semi-transition attack. Let's not use that versus um, Giannis. Yeah, um, <laughs> agreed. Uh, so I, I think it's. I mean, the well, the question for me is that if if Tony Snell 
is anything like he was in the middle of the regular season, then that's just an obvious place to go. But he, you know, I think, I think the last time we talked, we, we talked just briefly about the fact that he missed, what, two or three games there they in the season, and he just has not looked the same since that time. He's not right. making shots. You know, he's not really moving as well, you know. And, and, and in cases like that, sometimes you're like, well, is he hurt? Has he diminished? Or is this just the playoff, you know, environment kind of pushing him past what, where his skill set can kind of help him be effective? Um but I mean, he's he can do more than Solomon Hill can in terms of like a two-way player for sure. If he's right at all, but I have no. That's the question to me is like I have a hard time putting that wing those wing minutes together without knowing what Tony Snell's actual health status is. So I, you know, that makes it hard. But I mean, if if at the end of game one, Solo Hill's played thirty-two minutes, I'm not going to be shocked. Thirty or thirty-two? You know, did you say? If Bogdanovich can't play, who else plays? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's true. So, you know, I, I think you I think you take Trey, Lou, Herter, Gallo, Collins, Capella, Congo, those seven, you stretch them as far as you can go. But I mean, what do you do with all those minutes where Middleton and Giannis are on together? You know, I mean, who in the heck do you put out there that can, you know, pre- present some resistance there? And there's just not an answer that I see that doesn't involve a pretty heavy dose Slum Hill. So Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe some of the answer might be to scale up a Kongo a little bit, especially in, in combinations where you can use him with uh, Gallinari in some right. capacity or another. I, he's... You're not, he's not going to leap off the screen as somebody who's making your offense better, but I think there's some value to, to what he does on offense. Yeah, uh, he, he's just he's so I mean, fluid. funny. He's very fluid, but you could also see in game seven versus the Sixers, the Sixers were trying to force the Hawks to pass the ball to him at the free throw line. They were, I mean, they were letting him right. run up to the free throw line as kind of outlet. They wanted him to catch the ball there, and they were going to just, you know, attack him as soon as he did. And it was when it's close, it was like it's kind of frightening, you know. He's did so many things well, and he deserves more run. And you know, he's been so solid in so many ways. But there are still times where you're like, don't give him the ball right now. You know, just please don't <laughs> pass him the ball right now. You know, <laughs> I mean, you could say that about Capella. First, oh, absolutely, you can. But, you know, Capella just has more rhythm, for example, with Trey rescreening and, right. you know, finding the DHO and know, knowing what the angle is. And, you know, so there's just that, you know, it's, it's not ball skill, but it's Capella's still pretty precise. And a lot of his offensive action is rescreening and finding the angles and getting the ball back to the guard. He, you know, just a little bit more under control. I trust Capella with the ball away from the basket as long as he has a guard coming to get it and that he's going to yeah. help that guard get it and all that sort of stuff. But, that's but, you know, true. I think I would imagine a lot of Hawks fans are wondering why can't the Congo play at the four and push more Gallo minutes to, you know, a Congo hasn't played at the four all year no. long. Right. You know, that's that's not something they can ask him to do at this point in time, you know. Um, and so, I mean, man, how do you – I mean, it's going to be so critical in the series to protect Gallo and Collins from foul trouble and, you know, run them together and uh, have them available to play when the other's off the court. You know, I mean, that, that, 
the way the Bucks play defense, the way they prioritize packing the paint, having stretch bigs is really kind of one of the most um, attractive options you can to try to kind of defeat what they do. And, you know, so I think Gallo and Collins shot making across the series will have a lot to do with how far the series actually goes and who wins. Um, but if Giannis is just getting a foul on every second or third possession on, you know, the other team's four, you know, I was, I was ch- chatting with Zach Hood today and, I, um, and I said, Nathan Knight's going to end up playing real minutes in this series. And he was like, Oh my God, no, no way. No way. And I was like, no, I mean, if you look at kind of the wing depth and how big the Bucks' wings are and how critical it's going to be to not let, like, Gallo or JC, like, for example, pick up a fourth foul before halftime or whatever that might look like, there's going to be a time where I think Nate's going to try to get two minutes out of Nathan Knight just to make sure he has Gallo and JC available in the game. Um, but that's what the Bucks, that that's how this Bucks team will stress the Hawks in a way that neither the Knicks nor the Sixers did, is that constant length and that constant um, kind of looking for opportunities to run, looking for angles to the basket, looking to get past the point of attack defender and, and just kind of breaking everything down. You know, Tobias Harris wasn't that. You know, Tobias Harris did some good things, no. bad things in that series. Nobody in the Knicks was doing that. You know, once Middleton kind of gets into that 12-foot space on the baseline, he's pretty deadly down there. And once Drew gets there, he's pretty good at getting to the rim and finding an angle and all that sort of stuff, and that's not something they can do. Now, I mean, the big the Bucks are still deficient in, cre- in offensive creation, if you ask me, for a team that uh, sure. considers itself a, a true contender, you know, in a normal mm-hmm. NBA season. Um, but they, they're yeah. still going to stress the Hawks' defense in a way that – the Hawks didn't encounter in, in um, first or second round, even though they have their own pretty big flaws offensively. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I agree. I don't know. I, yeah, that's fair. I, I still think sort of as a two man game, it would be and Curry is scary, but you take all the other parts and factor it into it. And so it's certainly the Bucks are scary. I would push back on the night thing. I don't expect that we're going to see night. I think, you know, like you said, Solomon Hill is, you're going to see him. I think you could use Capella to guard Giannis a fair amount and not worry as much about the foul situation. Like I think he's, if, if you're worried about the Collins Gallinari foul situation on Giannis, you use Capella to guard him and then you use a Kongwu more at center. If Capella gets in foul trouble, I, I don't think you're going to see Nathan Knight. We'll see. You know, I, I want to be clear. Nathan Knight's not going to be in the rotation. And it's not going to be in the rotation. Yeah, and, I, I and, still don't and even expect like three minutes, though. Like, no. I'm just, I'm just expecting they're going to be finding themselves in a bind one time in the series where Nate's going to have to at least consider: Do I throw Knight out there for a couple minutes just because it's going to Solomon Hill, Tony Snell? We'll see. I don't know. You sound, you sound like you sound like Zach. No, the way he was pushing back on me. <laughs> you say that like it's an insult. I like Zach. Hi, Zach. If you're listening, I thank like, you for listening. <laughs> and thank you for posting the, the podcast, Zach. No, that, that's right. that wasn't being critical thank you, Zach. at all. I, what made me laugh is that that's, you, you said it like exactly like Zach said it. Like, come on, Glenn. Tony Snell. Come on, Glenn. Solomon Hill. And I'm just like, I'm telling you that they're, they're going to find themselves in a bind because this is this is what the Bucks – the Bucks don't, like, make a million shots. I mean, it's going to be hot from three-point line. Like, Lopez will make four out of five and a half, and you know, Middleton will have a nice shooting, you know. 
But this is what they do: is that they, you know, breach your, you know, interior defense. You know, they'll they'll attack your point of attack defenders. You know, kind of one or two steps inside the three point line, and you'll and you have to foul them to keep them out of there. And so all I'm saying is that one time in this series, to protect Gallo and JC, don't be shocked if we see Nathan Knight. I'll just okay. I'll leave it I'll leave it there. That's fair. Nathan Knight. We probably talked about him more. And they'll play in the series now. So <laughs> even if I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Uh is there is there anything else? Like what what do the Hawks need to do offensively? I mean, I think the, the Bucks defense is fairly predictable. I think you're you know, you're gonna see a lot of drop coverage. Yeah. Is is that all I mean, is it just gonna be a matter of Trey getting comfortable with his floater game or are there going to be wrinkles to try to get him out of that? You know, namely one being that Drew might be able to defend him better from behind than just about anybody. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Um, I remember Trey's first game against the Spurs. I think, I think Becky Hammonds had that scout and they played a, a drop and trail technique that drove Trey crazy. I mean, he, Trey hated that. His defender was like right behind him. Derek White, because like Derek White gave him fits all the way back to like some you know the right. the, the Spurs were in the Utah Summer League and and I think he struggled in that game too. Yeah, yeah. So but but I you know with Bud being out of the pop tree and then there's still a lot of kind of back and forth between Spurs and Grizzlies and Bucks and you know just in terms of ideas and defensive templates and things like that. Right. Um. But I mean that was. Trey's rookie year, you know, he's, he's really addressed that. And now he doesn't mind having a guy behind him right. um, so much. I mean, he was even, you know, after game two, he's pretty comfortable with Ben Simmons behind him, you know, right. um, Ben Simmons wasn't the one affecting his floater in game seven. It was indeed digging on his gather right in front of him. That was bothering Trey and his floater. So it's, it's going to be interesting because, you know, Bud really believes in the, in the, help defenders digging at dribble uh, ball handlers and the goal of the dig is to make the ball handler pick the ball pick up the dribble before they want to right and so the key key is can trey maintain his dribble as he looks to penetrate and can he do the nas dribble through and circle back and find the passing angle or that you know you know you just turn around floater from the opposite baseline or whatever um if the bucks are winning if you see trey picking up his dribble early earlier than he wants to before he really gets into the paint. Um, the Trey's doing well if he can kind of maintain that dribble and keep probing. So that's kind of a, a really big thing there. Um, but, you know, the Bucks switched a ton against Brooklyn. And that just doesn't seem like that's going to be what they want to do here, you yeah. know. Um, and so that that's going to be interesting because the Hawks just don't have those big wing scores, that, you know. If Hunter were st- in the, still in the series and somehow was going crazy one game, that might be something Bud would want to do. But it, it's going to be fascinating because the Sixers, like you and I talked about for Game 7, eventually even took away all of Trey's skip passes. I don't think Trey made a single skip pass to the corner in Game 6 or 7. I'd have to go back in Game 5 to see when that actually dried up for Trey. The Bucks live with, like, open corner threes, like, all the time, by, you know, pulling in the weak side help defender. So does Trey get that skip pass back? And is he able to kind of maximize that right away? Um, so it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how the Bucks try to contain Trey. You heard, he, you heard and I heard when Bud was in Atlanta that he always talked about the head of the snake in terms of how they prioritize their defense 
Friday one as the head of the snake. Yeah, I recall specifically hearing him talk about Isaiah Thomas and Celtic series, and there were others as well. So Trey's the head of the snake, and they're going to make, you know, containing him, limiting him. Um, priority number one, it's going to be fascinating to see how Trey deals with that. But, I mean, to be honest with you, Kevin, if you look at – in the games where the Bucks put together 115, 120 points, kind of get into that range, it really starts with turnovers and getting out and running and getting all those easy baskets – uh, and then getting the other team in the foul trouble. Um, and so step one is just don't – I mean, the Hawks were so good at not turning the ball over against the Sixers after the yep. first game. Yep. And that's going to be – I mean, that's – it that's sounds it. crazy to some people, but it's, it's even more important than making shots in the first quarter. Uh, yep. It's just because you're feeding the monster if you're turning the ball over against the Bucks, And that – in a way that not even – I mean, they're on a whole level across the whole league by themselves – in terms of what they can do with that. So it starts with don't turn the ball over, you know, be steady, don't get sped up, you know, you know take your time and work your offense, but take away your first action, you know, get yourself reorganized and do something productive and, and just don't turn the ball over. And that's really, I think, critical for just having a couple of basic goals to start the first quarter of the first game, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you wanted to get to? I'm I'm sure we're gonna to get to talk a lot about the Bucks in coming weeks. Yeah, no, it's it's good. It's gonna be. I think it's gonna be a fun series. I um, I expect it to go seven. I think it's. I think the Hawks have a real path here. Um, and I but and I to kind of go for a circle here. I wouldn't feel so strongly about the Hawks if it if the prior two series hadn't set them up so well to be prepared for this one. And because of how well they took care of the basketball against the Sixers makes you feel like they're going to have a, a chance to not play into the things that the Bucks use to, like, demolish their opponent. So, right. But we'll see if that works out. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. You too.